Welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable, a running podcast where we shake out and purposely go off track on any and everything related to our favorite hobby. Get ready to get uncomfortable along with our guests, because growth only happens outside of your comfort zone. Here are your hosts, Ines Babea, Jamie Chen, and Nathan Schiller. I'm Nathan Schiller. Hi, I'm Jamie Chen. Hi, and I'm Ines Bebea. Our guest today is Jess Woods, an ultramarathoner, a mile-high run club manager, a Nike coach, a Brooklyn track club coach, as well as the coach heading the trail part of Brooklyn track club. But today, for our sports legacy, Jamie will lead us right in. Pam Reed was the first woman to become the overall winner of the Badwater Ultramarathon. That's 135 miles. She did it in 27 hours, 56 minutes, 47 seconds. Badwater has been called the world's toughest foot race and a race that runs through Death Valley in the desert, 279 feet below sea level and climbs to 8,300 feet in the Mount Whitney summit in the Sierra Nevada in California. What do you think her win Men for women in ultramarathons, Jess? I mean, I think that she really kickstarted this era that we're seeing right now, you know, especially with names like Courtney Dolrotter, where women in endurance sports were only just now starting to scratch the surface of seeing what women are capable of in endurance sports. And you're starting to see this trend where the longer the distance, the greater the likelihood that women are going to win these races outright. So I think that her win, when was it? Back in, what did you say? Back in 2002? Yeah, I mean, that was well before That's only like time. 18 years ago. That's actually <laughs> short when you really think about it. I guess so, yeah. But that was just unprecedented then. And you're starting to see it become... I mean, almost not the norm now, but you're seeing it uh, more and more. And I think that she really became the, I don't know, icon and, and hope that women can really start to compete in this sport with men and, and start winning these races outright. Speaking of Death Valley, Jess, you were supposed to do the Speed Project solo. That's a race from Santa Monica Pier to Las Vegas, which is 340 miles. Why did you consider doing the Speed Project solo? Were you invited to do it? I was invited to do it, yes. And it, the invitation came at a very opportune time because uh, personally, I was going through a bit of a, a running funk and had kind of fallen out of in love with the sport a little bit. Um, I had just finished a hundred miler uh, in the Arizona desert in October, the end of October. And uh, it, I felt like I had kind of broken up with the sport then. Uh, we, we could save that for a different podcast for another day. But um, yeah, I had kind of fallen out of love with the sport and couldn't convince myself to find another race that inspired me. So when that opportunity came up, it was something so different and something I had never done before that it kind of ignited that fire again. And uh, hand in hand with that, I was also attending um, this endurance coaching summit 
last year where really the main focus was women in endurance sports. And so I was inspired by that endurance coaching summit, inspired by people like Courtney, Dual Water, and just really starting to see what women are capable of. And uh, I definitely jumped on that opportunity and wanted to be the first female to complete the speed project solo. Well, before you, you, you mentioned that you were falling, falling out of love with, yes. with Rena. I think we've all been there at one point or another. And then somehow we always end up going back why i don't know sometimes it feels like not a healthy relationship but um <laughs> we we do it for the love eventually um so how did you get started into running and how did you transition to ultra marathons uh my my mom compares uh, going back to the sport it, the kind of like pregnancy where you forget all of the bad things and only remember the good things and then you sign up and do it all over again <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't know what that's like, but she tells me that's what that's like. Um, but how I got into running in general, um, I mean, I, I hated running growing up for sure. I was super lazy and lazy people take up track and field. So I was a triple jumper for nine years. Uh, I was a triple jumper and a sprinter. And it wasn't until after I graduated college and moved to New York, and it's not like, you know, you can triple jump around the streets of, of New York and uh, 13 years well, I mean, ago. Bridge runners. I mean, I guess you could. I guess, yeah, bridge runners. You gotta were... jump, you gotta jump over big puddles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the... And says, you know, you name it. Yeah, that's the crew for it. But, uh... <laughs> It wasn't until I, I actually started with Lululemon Run Club, um, you know, earmuffs, Nike, but uh, I started with Lululemon Run Club because they were free and open to any ability level and patient with me. And I ran my first 5K with them, first 10K, first half marathon, and then eventually the, the San Francisco women's uh, marathon with them. And, you know, I quickly learned that I was never going to be the fastest at any of those distances and decided why not see if I can run the farthest. Because once you start running distances like 50 miles, 100K, 100 miles, people stop asking you, oh, well, what was your time? What was your pace? <laughs> it just kind of shuts that, <laughs> shuts that conversation down and you get more questions like, what did you eat? How did you sleep? Do you sleep? And so I got really interested in the complete opposite of triple jump and uh, got pulled into the ultra marathon and trail running scene. I totally fell in love with that sport. And it was really the, uh, Jamie knows this race, but it was really the greater New York 100 mile, 100 the TG, running. Oh, yeah. the TGNY. You did TG, that one? TGNY 100. You did so it? Greater well, I, so it was my first 100K, oh. but actually backtrack a little bit just to see if I even liked the sport of ultra running. I volunteered at that race the year prior and this race now holds a place near and dear to me because I volunteered to pace someone the last 20 miles of their first hundred miler. They ended up never getting to me. They dropped out. So here I am out in like Bensonhurst at 2 a.m. <laughs> by myself. And uh, I jumped in with, with a random person and helped pace her uh, and jumped in with her pacer because what else was I going to do? Uh, fast forward, 
it turned out to be a pacer for Nike Run Club. And she said, if you can pace this, you can pace anything. I'm recommending you to be a pacer for Nike Run Club. And so that started the entire domino effect of running. Uh, running and, and starting to pace for Nike Run Club, eventually going on to be a coach for Nike Run Club, falling in love with the ultra running community. It, like it just, it was the, the, the starting point for, for everything really. Wow. Well, we all usually know the ultras take a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and even though you are running solo, um, like you said, uh, you know, there's support. Um, you were a supporter, but there's a support group. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, in your honest opinion, what do these teams look like? Uh, are there, is there always a support group for ultra marathoners? Um, I mean, some people choose to, to run these solo. There's definitely, you know, unsupported divisions and solo divisions. I, the only solo race that I have done was an unsupported 50 miler and I will probably never do that again I don't, I don't I don't understand the purpose of making things harder just for the sake of it being harder um but to crew or to pace an ultra marathon takes a certain kind of love and you either have to really love the sport or love the person that you're supporting and uh oh yeah I've learned that from TGNY 100 yeah, and I don't, you know, there's the quote about marathons, something about if you want to, you know, be inspired about the human race, go out and watch a marathon, I, multiply that by 10 and talk about being inspired about the human race and watching people go through all of these highs and lows and uh, pushing through these challenges and discovering who they are as a person all in the span of, you know, 24, 30 hours. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons why I love this, the sport and watching the crew teams and the pacers all come together to help this person accomplish a seemingly pointless feat of athleticism. I mean, to pivot a little bit, do you find that a lot of the race, you know, the ultra marathon support teams and the runners tend to be, they don't look like me, you know what I mean? And what does they don't look like me mean, Jamie, for people who can't see you right now? <laughs> oh, okay. Good question. I find that um, they tend to be a lot of white people, um, very, uh, very few people of color. And I guess that's what I meant. Like, what do the teams tend to look like? Oh, gotcha. Um, I think that is definitely true. Um, the, the moment that I, that came to uh, the front of my brain so there's a photographer who is super famous in the ultra running world he's the photographer of these ultra races and i pulled up his instagram recently to try and find a shot for hbcus outside when we were advertising uh that organization and we'll get to that later i couldn't find a single photo of at any of his races that he's documented with anyone but white people at the starting line. So um, it's definitely a space that is predominantly taken up by white faces. Um, I don't I don't know, you know, I think we have <laughs> some suspicions as to why that might be. But yeah, that's definitely a problem statement that we are all working towards solving right now. Well, Jess, uh, I'm curious what you think those um, reasons are. Like, I also, I've run a f 
some ultra marathons and I've noticed the same thing. It's and you know, white and heavily male, though I was looking up some stats and that number, you know, it was extremely, almost exclusively a white male sport when it yep. started, maybe like 30 some years ago. And um, there's been a lot more women participation, like you said, but still it's ex uh, extremely white and we can't necessarily track that because you don't get asked, you know, what your race is on an entry form, but mm -hmm. it's obvious, like you said. Um, so why, why do you think that is? And um, what do you... Are you talking to people about it? Or are, you, are you hearing anything? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely talking to people about it. I'm going to steal a quote from um, HBCU's Outsides founder, Ron Griswell. He said it quite succinctly. People participate in places and spaces where they see themselves reflected. So if you do not see someone who looks like you in a particular sport, why would you be inspired to participate in that sport? So I think representation is, uh, you know, it comes down to representation and accessibility. I think those are the two um, factors that we're, that we're dealing with um, from the people that I've talked to, from the organizations that I've worked with, from the interviews with athletes that I've had, it all seems to boil down to representation and accessibility. So uh, I was curious about accessibility and I want to throw in kind of the cost angle because, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you run ultras, you can stay local in small races and it's pretty affordable. But if you want to do something like Badwater, for instance, um, you know, that's a $1,500 price tag and you have, that's if your, you know, extensive application is even accepted. And of course that doesn't even include travel costs and lodging costs. Um, plus you want to have like, we know a crew that you can convince to come out and spend the money also to help you get through the race. So, you know, I'm not, I don't want to criticize Badwater, uh, just mm -hmm. use it as an example because the costs and logistics of putting on that type of race are obviously immensely, um, high and actually Badwater on its website is pretty transparent about those costs. And, you know, they kind of offset it through donations and charitable partnerships, but, the point still remains that it's really easy to imagine scenarios where a, a really qualified ultra runner from somewhere in the country, maybe, you know, not a white male um, gets accepted to Badwater on the merits, but can't even go because of these high costs. So, you know, I've always thought like there has to be some better way to make highly popular races affordable. It can't just be, Oh, you know, we, these races are really popular. So we're going to like, you know, just keep going with the status quo. Um, and we see the same thing happen with the New York City Marathon in the distance running level. So oh, yeah, is this, this something is an, also that you're seeing and talking about? This is exclusive to Badwater, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this is true for, for any race. I think that the sport of running in general, we have always kind of bragged about running being this sport that is super accessible and anybody can do and all you need is a pair of sneakers but I think everybody on this call knows that that's maybe not true you know if you want to go further and further into this sport and you know travel and experience these different races that's absolutely not true so I feel like some of the things that these races can do is maybe set aside a certain number of entries where they fund athletes coming from 
I don't know, underserved communities who have qualified, like you said, uh, on a basis of merit, but might not be able to afford it. Or, you know, maybe brands could set aside some funding. Um, I was just on a diversity and inclusion panel recently where um, I guess the rowing community has done a great job with this problem statement and it would be great to see it translated to other endurance sports. They're doing a great job with finding funding for, um, you know, either athletes who want to become coaches or athletes who can't afford to go to these training camps. Um, so I think we need to see some of the races themselves step up and or some some brand partners step up and and help uh some portions of the running community who would like to do these things but might not have the the means to do it yeah because like i think if um nathan had mentioned this earlier while we were prepping that for Badwater, i think is like fifteen hundred dollars so i can only imagine that already if you see that number like well that's all that's just like to get into the race like if i have to travel then I'm paying for the transportation and probably have to get yeah. a car to get there and then where I'm going to stay. And then if I'm bringing people with me, convincing them <laughs> to spend yeah. much money to be in the middle of nowhere, you know? So yeah. what goes into planning for you and your support? I guess you, you've done the Javelina 100. Yeah. Uh, how, how was that process for you? Like you could even just talk about like financially, like, what you what you did and like what your team did for you, I guess just to just to showcase how basically like it access to things like that is it, not available to everyone. Yeah, it really adds up. Um, I think a better example than Havelina would be when I was putting the budget together for the speed project solo. That is something where the cost really added up between uh, flights and the RV rental hotel in Vegas, if and when we got there, I think it came and, you know, gas, food, all of those things. Uh, I think it came out to somewhere around $7,000 if I wanted to, you know, foot the bill for everybody. So I started reaching out to um, brands and not asking brands just, hey, can you fund this because I want to do this cool thing, but you have to spin it to what's in it for them, right? So I was going to be providing an article about the extreme lack of inclusivity of females in sports science and research. So I think that we have, you know, broken the barrier with women participating in endurance sports. You know, we can check that box. I think the most recent data showed that for 100 milers, there was a 65-35 split when it comes to male versus female participation, which is pretty amazing. Um, but there's still no inclusivity of women in sports science and research. Even if you look at something as simple as how much protein do you need to eat after a run? All of these studies are on 20 to 28 year old males, for example. And so, you know, I had to put something together uh, and put a story together and reach out to brands and uh, photographers and, and Tempo Journal. That's who I was working with uh, to try and put something together because, you know, $7,000 isn't small potatoes for most anybody. Yeah. And I think also in, in doing something like that, you could also, you know, there's always the opportunity to just look at the, within the women group, like how diverse is it, you know, because we had, um, 
Peyton was uh, a guest in the podcast already, um, already and she talked about mm -hmm. having access to the outdoors and you know being you know the safety issue as a woman and also like as a person of color and then basically going places where like she's just not welcome and I think you know just an overlooked study of like why are at some point like people of color just kind of like stop going to those places and understanding like the why and like you're saying like what you know the companies can do to improve that yeah, and I think we're at a turning point right now where companies and brands and races, everyone should be hyper-focused on this issue and willing to drive this mission forward. So, you know, hopefully we start to see um, more sustainable change and funding and support in this well, What What space. sort of things have you seen that make you think we are like specifically at a turning point? Um, what things have I seen? I mean, if you <laughs> are not actively either reflecting or making changes or educating yourself, I, I just feel like every brand, every company, every person right now uh, should be or should have already done those things. Um, I'm starting to see things like uh, Prospect Park Track Club. They have recognized that, you know, we have a lot of personal trainers of color, but not a lot of running coaches of color. So they're looking into sponsoring athletes and funding them through the RRCA certification process so they can uh, go on and become certified running coaches. Um, so, uh, you know, I have hope that you know seeing running groups seeing companies seeing you know i i haven't seen it from race directors themselves yet so maybe that's mm. um maybe the next piece that we can start reaching out to and start holding them accountable in this space but at least from the running crews and teams and brands and companies uh, we're starting to see some some change happening but I think also like um, coffee, we talked about this as well. He was our guest like in the last episode. And I think the question, it always comes down to like, but the topic of like the lack of diversity and access and representation has always been there. Like why now? Is it because of the pandemic? Is it like the pe people are at home? Like, why do you think now 2020 seems to be the year that maybe things will change. Like, I think we even talked about this and as far as our representation and like runner's world, you know what I mean? Like we, we bring this up all the time where like in dirt covers, there's always like, you know, white women or white men, when they do have a person of color, that person happens to be either like a celebrity or a professional athlete. Like why now? Why do you think that now 2020 is gonna really make a difference? I think you're exactly right and nailed it when talking about the pandemic. I think that if there is one good thing that's going to come out of this, it's the fact that people have had the time, right? We have never had this amount of time to ourselves or in our own homes to reflect, to pay attention to the news, to like, if we weren't in a pandemic, it wouldn't have been as easy to drop everything and 
go out and protest in your neighborhood and participate in all of these running to protests. And, uh, you know, I went to uh, meditating for Black Lives in Bed-Stuy. Like, there's just so many opportunities to get involved now. And although the pandemic is a totally terrible, awful thing, we at least have time now to to reflect and to actually take the time to start making actionable and sustainable change. So if there's one good thing that can come out of 2020, I think it's that. So do you think that 2020, and like you said, like you, you went to meditation for like Black Lives, you've been mm-hmm. with, with coffee. What has this moment taught you or like made you look at as far as like your own white privilege you know what I mean because you as like as a white woman you kind of like you benefit from both like if when in the in the white supremacy mentality like like is you know as a man and the woman you know like when the diversity push comes in it's like the white woman is always like the first to be given access to things so like what what has 2020 showed you about like your own privilege like how, how have you noticing about your own experience and running and coaching and even applying for jobs? Yeah, I think less in the running world. I I can't say that I've ever, and, and maybe I'm wrong to think this, but I can't say that I've ever noticed or thought about myself as having a privilege in the running space. You know, it's not like I put my you know, race on my, like, white female race on my application to the Havilene 100. It's, I don't think, like, I'm getting into that race any easier than anybody else. It's open to all. So less about my white privilege when it comes to running. But, for example, Coffee's first running to protest where uh, that was the first time everybody had really seen each other in the pandemic. He asked everybody to come out and he asked me to specifically talk about what white people can do in the fight against systemic racism. It was uh, an honor for coffee to ask me to do that and also scary as hell because listening to the other speakers, I will never experience some of the things that you know, Mike Sace has experienced or coffee has experienced. I will never feel those things or experience those challenges. And it's hard for me to relate or or anything like that. But the most I can do uh, as a white person in this space is to use my platform to elevate and amplify black stories. That's one of the easiest things I feel like I can do. Um, So that's why I put myself out there all the time, go to all the running to protest, posting about it, posting quotes from Power, Coffee, all the other speakers who are there, uh, because it's very apparent that I will never experience the things that Uh, these other folks have experienced because of my privilege so the most that I can do or the least actually that I can do now is is use my platform for good and amplify stories and and bring people together and use my platform for good yes do you have the sense that other people um, are thinking that and and feeling that Um, or is there resistance like when you're talking with your friends um, or not your friends, just anyone you know who's white, you know, out of the 
um, earshot of non-white people? Uh, that that's an interesting question. I I don't know if people are afraid to talk to me about it, but I haven't received any, you know, trolls on Instagram or or people in the comments or or DMs or text messages of uh, conflicting opinions. Um, I have lost a lot of followers from it and that's okay. So maybe people who didn't agree with me just uh, silently, silently left and that's all right. We don't need them. But um, no, I have maybe because we live in the bubble of New York where I think we're blessed with uh, a lot of people sharing the same thoughts and mission statement that, you know, I haven't really been faced with any kind of uh, resistance in diversifying the outdoors. But so how, how are the conversations, like for example, when you go back home to like Pittsburgh and your family, how, and like your, your high school friends, like does race ever come up as a topic and of things that you have seen? Um, it is a little bit jarring coming back home. I just went on a run today. Uh, so I'm, I'm back home in Vandegrift, Pennsylvania right now. And in my hometown on a six mile run that I went on today, I counted 38 Trump signs or flags, which was a little, uh, you know, jarring and uh, I, I had absolutely no idea that it was uh, this bad here, but I have been blessed with at least family and friends that, say, that share the same ideals as me. My mom is very supportive. My mom, my brother and sister-in-law, they went out and ran their virtual 5K for HBCUs outside, Black to the Trails 5K. So they definitely understand the mission statement and, and share the same ideals. So I, I'm definitely blessed with at least my immediate family and friends sharing those same ideals, but it's a little scary looking around, you know, the rest of uh, this city. I'm going to turn the conversation a little bit only because I'm a little curious, Jess. Uh, I know you came to New York, but you didn't come to New York for sports. I think you studied material science or something in college. And, <laughs> yes, she used to be smart. <laughs> and then, but, but you, didn't, you didn't relocate to New York for running. I think where you, work, you worked in a different field. So how did this whole turnabout happen? Um, yeah, I moved to New York straight out of college. Uh, I worked for NBC Universal, which was owned by GE at the time. I was a, I was a material science engineer and uh, was accepted into GE's operations management leadership program. And they had us rank which GE business unit we wanted to, to enter. And looking at the list, it's like, okay, oil and gas, transportation, NBC Universal. <laughs> I chose NBC Universal. I wanted to move to New York City. And uh, so I didn't necessarily use material science engineering, but it was definitely uh, like project engineering, broadcast engineering. And I worked at NBC for, for eight and a half years, uh, around eight and a half years. And the running thing, I was kind of leading a double life for a little bit at the end where, you know, I was coaching a morning miles in the morning and 
running to 30 Rock and taking a call from the bathroom, changing into my business casual and then going about my day and then sneaking out to coach a home run at night or something like that. And it wasn't until Mile High Run Club approached me to, to become a coach at Mile High Run Club. And it felt like more and more opportunities were coming up in the running space, you know, organically without me even uh, actively pursuing it, that it just felt like the right thing to do. So, so I made the leap to leave broadcast engineer, the glamorous job of broadcast engineering uh, at NBC and full-time coaching at Mile High Run Club and, and Nike about hmm, five and a half years ago. So just um, with all these, uh, you know, moves around, you've gotten a real pulse, it seems like, on the fitness industry. And uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but one thing our guests have said continuously is that, you know, in there, there's a real lack of diversity with fitness instructors. So um, as you were kind of rising up and getting involved in this, did you notice this stuff? And did you think like, you know, this, there's something not right about this or, um, you know, what, what's your take? Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know if it's fair to say that there's a lack of diversity with fitness instructors. I definitely agree that there's a lack of diversity with running coaches. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, since day one at Mile High Run Club, they have made a conscious effort of having a diverse staff uh, of coaches and it, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to find running coaches of color. And, you know, we can hypothesize what? as to why that is. Like, why are yeah. there more trainers think? of color versus running coaches of color? Um, I think it, I, it might be a catch-22 back to, uh, you know, what we talked about where if you don't see people who look like you in this space, why would you want to do it? And then, so if you're not participating in the sport, why would you want to be a running coach in that sport? Um, so it might be a snowball effect there. And that's why I like seeing some of these running groups. And uh, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe Brooklyn Track Club is looking into this as well with funding and sponsoring athletes to become running coaches. I don't know if it's just not a glamorous thing or if it's not cool to be a running coach or people don't know how to become a running coach, but let's at least uh, give, people, give people the opportunity if the accessibility uh, thing is the issue. But I think it could also, I mean, it goes back to like connections and, and access. Cause like you said, like someone came to you from a high to recruit you. But I think also like in just like in the overall coaching, um, for example, like when Nike Run Club had their sessions, like every head coach that was there has been a white person. So like, I'm also, you said that, mm -hmm. you know, there's maybe there's, there's just not coaches that just not there. But my thing is like, for example, like, Coach Bennett was the first one. Then he came, Julia, then Steve Finley, and then you came, and then um, Rebecca Stowe. So I just find it surprising that to be in New York City, that with all the history, like the running history that New York has, that Nike was unable to 
tapping through the circles or like the running community and said like, hey, we are looking for people to bring up to, through the ranks and like coach mm-hmm. like in the pace of like how, how does something like that happen? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think the three founding NRC coaches were Bennett and Coach Knox and Tracy Copeland. So they did start off with uh, a diverse uh, group of coaches. I can't speak to their thought process or hiring process as to how it morphed into what it is today. I can only speak to, you know, my personal journey as to how I came through the ranks of becoming a Nike running coach. Um, But it, I definitely understand. And I hear you that it started off with, uh, you know, coach Bennett Knox and Tracy and Tracy. And and now it's myself and Finley and coach. So, um, I think that they definitely recognize that, I, I, but I can't, I, I can't speak to, unfortunately, what they're, what they're doing, but these are conversations that definitely need to happen. Yeah, because like, we were kind of like sharing with Nathan, like our experience with like Nike Run Club, because that's how Jamie and I met and like, you know, you guys. And I remember like, I don't remember like Coach Knox, ever like leading the sessions. I just remember like Bennett <laughs> and then we're like, no, cause each coach has their own strength. And I know like, I know Tracy. I remember Holder, not. I, I know Tracy did a lot of like the, the yoga and like the. And the Trunday, RIP Trunday. Do you right. remember? I don't remember that. <laughs> when training meets running, that was a very special <laughs> Friday morning, 6 a.m. Trunday session. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I know, like, no, I would not be up for that. No, definitely not. <laughs> no, but I, but I think just to say that, like, and even, you know, like, Tracy and Knox, like, Knox has, does his own thing with, like, Black Roses, and I remember, like, he did a lot of, like, the, the cultural runs, yeah. But I think eventually when it became just like the day-to-day of the people that we saw, like even after like NRC broke up and it just became moonshot. Yeah. You know I mean? it, it is just, it's you and Philly and Stowe. And I think Joe Holder in name only because he never did anything with the runner. <laughs> Ooh. But it's true. Like, I, it hey, no true. offense. I, I have no issues with Joe Holder because I remember him. He's, he used to come do workouts at Nike Town when we had the terrace. Oh, he ran um the the track. I remember Tuesday track at uh, Randall's Island when it always was always Coach Holder. But I'm just saying, like, yeah, just like the main coaches have been, you know, white people. And uh, like, we I were talking about like yeah, how how can we, like, the fact that we still haven't had, like, a Latino coach you know, like, or like, or an Asian coach, or. Uh, yeah, I definitely hear you. And, and when things hopefully come back to normal, that's definitely a conversation that we need to have uh, on the positive, at least the pacing staff was a very diverse, beautif- beautifully <laughs> represented group of pacers. And, uh, you know, the, the one session that I, that I miss the most is that ready, set, go run. I don't know if you remember <gasps> yes, that session. Julia, ready, set, go was on Sundays at Harlem. Yes. And do you remember it was open? So one of the great things that, that Nike did was the session was free. 
It yep. was open to anybody. And hey, let's hold a session in Harlem where we're going to be at a track where the community is also going to be. And they're going to start wondering, hey, what's this? What's going on? And we got community members to jump in and join us. And it was those sessions where we broke not only the accessibility barrier, but what Nike did a great job of doing was breaking that intimidation factor that running kind of inherently has of, oh, yes. I, need to, I need to get in shape first before I come out to a run. No, that's no, no, no. Why, That's why I like Ready, Set, Go. It wasn't difficult. I won't say it was easy, but it was like it broke up into sessions and there was always like a teaching aspect like, okay, let's yes. practice form. So whenever you run track, we're going to practice an A skip. Guys, we're going to do A skips all around and then we're going to practice with a B skip and this is going to help you develop an accurate running form. Yes. And I think that it was also explicitly inclusive, right? Like all ability levels, all like genders, all races, all anything. Come out to Ready, Set, Go Run. So I think that Nike did a lot of things well in terms of, you know, the sessions that they offered, the pacers that we had. And yes, the final step is is definitely uh, making the coaching staff uh, a more diverse staff. I agree. I, 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 I how can't. Did you, <laughs> how did you rise through the ranks to, to become like a Nike coach? How, what was that process like? Uh, so I was a Nike pacer for a few years. I don't remember how many, but yeah, it was just, Inez, you should remember our like 14 mile, long run where me and you were together babe in the cold and the snow and <laughs> I was pacing you through a very cold long run once upon a time and uh yeah I, I transitioned from pacer to I guess they took a chance on me with a small group of influencers who were uh training for the Nike Toronto 15k and they asked me to lead that group for for that race and it must have went well. And after that, they asked me to, to come on to the coaching staff. So um, started off as a pacer, did a little trial run with uh, influencers for a Nike race and then was asked to come on to the coaching staff. I do remember the, the race in Toronto. I didn't go, but I think any run that was probably more than like 10 miles, I probably blacked it out. <laughs> that's why you blacked out our yeah, long run together so you said that you you were selected to be a coach from the pacer pool like how many how many people have been made coaches after you from that same scenario <laughs> uh i do not believe anyone after me uh i i feel like they were starting to go that route um, uh, with the with the most recent pacer pool. I know they were definitely looking at coffee uh, for more of an elevated role, um, but you know nothing officially happened, and I don't I don't even know if he would if he would want that uh, kind of position. I think he kind of liked where he was at, but uh, no, unfortunately, I feel like I am the only one who who kind of went through that. But that should be 
the the breeding ground for for future coaches for sure and when was it for you that you got moved up when was that like uh i believe june of 2015 okay okay God, yeah. I, re I remember that. I think that's when I first met Jess a lot at Home Run. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. With Daniel Medina and like the, the Daniel, that we would oh, have. I loved him. Bless. <laughs> Jess, you recently did a run in Van Cortlandt Park, right? And yes. um, so I th what type of people showed up? You know, did other run groups participate? Uh, how do people find out about these things if they're not on social media? if they're not like kind of social media savvy and they're not in these inner circles and you know what I mean by like, you know, the run circle, like what are your thoughts about barriers and accessibility to those types of activities? Um, I, <laughs> I feel like you're, yeah, you're definitely, uh, definitely calling me out here. Um, so people need to, right now be on Instagram to, to hear about these runs. So let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, we talked about how I not only am a coach for Brooklyn Track Club, but I also lead our little subdivision of Brooklyn Track Club Trail. And you do not need to be a member to join uh, my trail runs. I want the trail runs to be open and accessible to all because everybody should have the opportunity to explore and enjoy the outdoors. I'm going to so, take you up on that. <laughs> Wait, you haven't been to one yet? No, I've been scared. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I am trying my best to make it explicitly clear that, I mean, even our housekeeper from Mile High Run Club joined uh, a, a few of our trail runs, actually. So we always have a front, middle, back of the pack, and even a hiking group, like, anybody can join these I guess that's why, that's why I feel intimidated because I look at the type of people that participate in these events and they look super fit or fast I don't know I just I like I sometimes feel like maybe I would hold people back and so I feel intimidated so that's what I mean like I don't find that sometimes people look like me you know like the average you know slow back of the pack type person uh, I, I'm going to encourage everybody to follow BKTC trail right now. And hopefully we can, uh, defunct that, that myth where, uh, hopefully I highlight that these runs are open to all ability levels, but, um, yeah. So unfortunately back to like your main question, the only place that I'm advertising these right now is Instagram. So, uh, or, if you are a Brooklyn Track Club community member, which means you can sign up for our newsletters but not be a paying member because we do have sessions that are open to the community. We also put it out in the Brooklyn Track Club community um, newsletter. Uh, I definitely need to find a way to, to get the message out to folks who aren't on Instagram. But yeah, as of right now, that's where I'm posting the information. I'm leading a trail run once a month. And the whole goal of leading these trail runs once a month is to help people uh, start building their Rolodex of options of trail runs in and around New York. So I'm taking them to trails that are accessible by public transportation. So you don't need to have 
a rental car or an Airbnb or anything like that. I want to show them all of the the places that you can explore in and around New York simply by public transportation. And I'm taking them on guided runs, whether it's, uh, we always have a shorty option, you know, just like bridge runners, we've got a shorty option of five so miles. Like 10 miles. <laughs> I try and do like a five mile loop that would be um, accessible for everybody. And then, uh, you know, a bigger loop or a bigger out and back for people that want to turn it into a long run. So yeah, the goal is once a month, we're going places that you can get to via public transportation. We've been to things like Cold Spring, Suffern to Bear Mountain, Beacon. Um, I'm trying to take them somewhere different every single month because, you know, when I started in this world of trail and ultra, I absolutely had no idea what I was doing. And so now that I, I have that knowledge, I want, to, I want to share it with everybody. Well, I think it is great that you mentioned that uh, you, you're gonna do this like once a month, like bring people into it. But I think in a way, we could also like maybe address a little bit like the access part of it, because like right now, it just seems that our, our people that are either like they know about Brooklyn Trial Club or they're part of like that inner circle of like the Nike connection. Like for example, you have partnered for this runs with like Old Man Run Club, uh, which mm -hmm. is right. It's like, it's a great group. Again, I am not saying anything bad about them. I'm just using them as, <laughs> an, as an example. But you know how people are quick to like, oh my gosh, she said that. I'm like, no, listen, just using this as an example that you are giving them access because you know them. They're, they're a part of like your inner circle. But if maybe, how about opening that access door to people that don't know Nike, that don't know Broken Track Club, that don't know Man Run Club. Like for mm -hmm. example, groups that have already been, traditionally been excluded, like reaching out to like Black Man Run, reaching out to like uh, Harlem Run, reaching out to like, being strong fast or even yep, I, know, yep. I, I know that you um you go to boys and girls track in brooklyn a lot mm -hmm. about maybe one day taking the kids that go to that school you know what i mean because you yeah. are you're there in their space how about maybe doing something like that so i think that the we haven't we haven't talked about this yet i hear you with reaching out to other groups and we did just that when we had our nine days of fundraising effort for HBCUs outside. So what I did with HBCUs outside, instead of just doing, you know, a one-off, hey, you know, run a 5K, tag us in your 5K and donate money to this event, we went big this year. And we organized nine days worth of in-person runs uh, for, your, for your chance to run your, your virtual 5K uh, for this great cause. So we did a Brooklyn Track Club trail with Define New York. We went to Brick City Run Club in Newark, New Jersey. We worked with So Swanky. We worked with Mile High Run Club, Bridge Runners, Goldfinger Track Club, Old Man Run Club, and then we closed it out with Prospect Park Track Club and Lean Strong Fast with a trail run in Prospect Park. And so 
that nine days worth of, of fundraising effort and coordinating working with black leaders and leaders of color in the running community to expose their running groups to the trails was so impactful exhausting but impactful and p getting people out to the trails who would have never run trails before and hopefully you know inspiring their followers to to explore the outdoors or just for them themselves to continue um i know that we had we had jay there we had boogie down bronx come out to some even though we didn't explicitly work with them so i I hear you that the trail runs were, you know, simply open to all, but it was really that fundraising push for HBCUs outside where we reached out to all of those different run crews. And now it's going to be, you know, how do we make that sustainable, right? So that was great for those nine days. Yeah. Now we got to keep, we got to keep the momentum going. Yeah, Jess, I was curious about that. Like, a after you organize all these things and you bring people in, do you find that there's growth and that you bring in new people, like maybe a person or two, um, you know, who wasn't interested in trail running or being with a group is now part of the group? Or does it stay in kind of like um, the same people over and over again? Oh, though, I feel like... So we, I've been doing this um, since July. So I did it January, February, March. No, I did it January, February, had to take a break, came back in July. And we're seeing, yes, you see some of the same faces every time, but that's okay. They fell in love with it. Let them come to every single uh, trail run. But we're seeing different people come out for the first, like people who haven't run trail ever come out for the first mm. time. Like we had, so at the Prospect Park, no, not Prospect Park, at the Van Cortland Park one that we just had, we had a few people from Miles Stylers come out who had never run trails before ever, and they completely fell in love with it. They were asking if we did this every week. <laughs> you know, we have, uh, we had Victoria come out who had never run trails before. Um, you know, my good friend Valerie, who had never run trails before, and fought me every step of the way with it is now a regular so I, it's the... i can hear her voice in my head complaining <laughs> Val. you know I, I call her storm cloud in my head sometimes <laughs> oh my god she perpetuated every stereotype at first i wanted to kill her <laughs> like what she said well coffee as well i'm gonna throw him under the bus he was like coach i ain't climbing shit I was like, coffee, <laughs> just come out <laughs> but i mean i think in a way uh, like as like i said like peyton mentioned this in her podcast and like for minorities it's also is it the safety issue you know what i mean of like being attacked like someone threatened Peyton's life when she was about to, you know, go for a trail run and was only even maybe going to do like maybe five and she didn't get past like the first one. Like, you know, like I think if, you know, even like over the summer with the Ahmad's murder, you know, he was just running. Yeah. You know, and, and, I, shot. and, and, um, I mean, I haven't, seen that on group runs luckily I and I've, I haven't experienced that myself so 
uh, I can't speak to that. I would like to think that uh, the trail community and exploring the outdoors and especially in groups, we should be, um, you know, safe in that environment. Um, so as of right now, luckily we haven't experienced that with our group runs. Right, but you know, you go in as a group, you know, there's, you know, the safety in numbers, but I'm sure like when you've gone places on your own, there's a, it's a different weight on your shoulders if, if I were to go run in the middle of like, where was Peyton? I think somewhere in like in the South, you know what I mean? That's the kind of like, when I mentioned before about like recognizing your own privilege that you have that, even though if you don't, you don't go out and like you said, you don't check the box that says like white woman running, you know what I mean? But the fact that you can go into certain places where no one is going to question that you belong. Uh, I don't know if there was a question in there, but I definitely, <laughs> I definitely hear you and, and, and understand you. Um, but I cannot say, yeah, that I have experienced that personally. I mean, I've experienced it just as a female, but I prepare for the worst. So hopefully the worst never happens. Um, I was going to say real quick, like you mentioned, uh, like you, you, you as a, as a coach now, at Mile High and then with Brooklyn Track Club and then Nike, you're kind of like in a position to open doors for other people, whether it is to get them into the coaching ranks, to get people promoted at Mile High, to get people like into outdoors. Like what is, what is your plan for that for like the next year or like the next two years? Uh, so my, plan right now and what I've been seeing a lot of success with is with these group trail runs and uh, historically I've made one big push partnering with um, a charity or an organization a different one every year so you know three years ago I was working with Nike and with their young athletes program two years ago I worked with Discover Outdoors and organized and, and participated in their hikeathon, which raised money for kids in underserved communities so that they can go and explore the outdoors. And then this year was of course HBCUs outside. So I would absolutely love to keep that momentum going because that's something easy that I can do of highlighting different charities, foundations, organizations every year, partnering with them, elevating them, amplifying their stories, uh, while also uh, growing the trail community, you know, with our Brooklyn Track Club trail community. So my main focus is to get as many and uh, all people exploring and enjoying the outdoors and then continuing to partner with uh, different organizations and charities. Well, and that brings us to the hot mic. I really need to get some drums for that to just make it even the <laughs> Or I can just, I can just vomit because. <laughs> Why would you vomit? This is, well, oh, I think God. Jess, you've done great. I mean, this is just, you get your, you know, you get to speak for a certain length of time. You know, here's the thing. I'm a closet introvert. So it, it, it makes me wildly uncomfortable when attention is on me, but, he, but yeah, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> 
Two minutes. Any topic, anything you want to say, we're gonna yeah. end. We're gonna we're gonna close our show with you know some last words from Jess Woods. But if you oh. want to go on like a ten minute Steelers rant, that's okay too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I just want to talk to my boyfriend Juju for two minutes and <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Juju, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, so so I think I think for the two minute hot take hot mic um i'm gonna t continue this this theme of exploring and enjoying the outdoors because it has definitely what has fueled my fire during the pandemic and during these weird times where we've all been in the in that dark and twisty place where motivation was low and everything felt extremely difficult and being able to safely share the outdoors with others has been the good good that's that's fueled my fire so i love sharing the trails and outdoors and helping others experience all the positive effects that come with that um and the the main question that i get is i want to run tra trails but i have no idea where to get started uh so my mission is to take all of the the learnings and mistakes and uh, adventures that I've been on and start sharing them with others and as I mentioned each month we're going to have adventures with Brooklyn Track Club Trail and that's open to everybody all ability levels any run crew any uh, first timer to uh, ultra marathon extraordinaire and for now uh, I'm posting unofficial guides in our highlights on our Instagram. So for folks who were not able to make it in person or didn't feel safe or comfortable joining in person, I have an unofficial guide up on our Instagram. And we're going to eventually turn this into an official guide on our relaunched Brooklyn Track Club website. So I want to have that local trail guide available to everybody. And obviously, I am a resource and you can contact me through either Brooklyn Track Club Trail Instagram, my own Instagram, through my coaching website, whatever you want, because at the end of the day, we just want to help. Like we, as in we coaches, just want to help. So utilize me, ask questions, come out to our next trail adventure, meet like-minded people, drink a train beer, get uncomfortable, you know, be the inspiration to your followers and let's help create that snowball effect. Nathan, were you, did you, did you start the timer? Or? Did you time me? Yeah, of course. It was exactly two minutes. You thought I would let you down? I have it at two, two eleven. So it's like, you know, my 800 time. Oh, <laughs> oh damn, you're fast. <laughs> There was a day not my when I was all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jess, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us. I also want to thank my co-hosts, um, Nathan and Jamie, and the listeners that keep showing up to grab a drink with us and just talk about running and get uncomfortable. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Uncomfortable. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on the App Store, and follow us on Spotify.